looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Robert. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 84 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. So excited to have you back for what I would like to refer to as an amazing episode. How amazing is it? I'll tell you how amazing it is. We're cracking open the multiverse this week. That's right. And who's stepping through? Nicholas Hammond, that's right, 1970s Amazing Spider-Man and Peter Parker himself is stepping through that multiverse and hanging with Jeff Duoskin on Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. How exciting is that? So exciting. I know, right? But we don't just talk Spider-Man. Nicholas was Frederick von Trapp in The Sound of Music. We talk all about working on that film and working with Julie Andrews. Nicholas was also the star of the original Lord of the Flies movie. We talk about that film as well. And of course, we talk about his amazing role in the Brady Bunch as Doug Simpson, big man on campus. We talk all about that. Oh, what was that? Oh, something suddenly come up. Haha, that's right. Almanos. This episode's got it all, folks. It's got it all. It's amazing in more ways than one. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. I do want to thank everyone who shared feedback on our new Thursday bonus episodes that highlight live segments from Crossing the Streams. Crossing the Streams, as I hope you know, is my weekly live show I do every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You're always asking yourself, what TV shows should I be watching? Crossing the Streams answers that question for you. So now, right here in this feed... In, in this podcast feed, you don't have to do anything. There'll be a Thursday bonus episode. You'll know it's the bonus. One, it's on Thursday. Two, has a different intro. It's a different format. It's me and a group of friends talking and having conversations about TV shows we think you should be watching. Check that out. You can always check out all the full live episodes on YouTube at the Jeff Tawaskin Show channel. You can listen to us live every Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Head over to jeffisfunny.com the podcast website on the World Wide Web. It's got information on the live show. You can listen to every episode of the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast apps. You can buy me a coffee. You can join my mailing list. Follow me on the socials. Everything you need, your heart's desire, awaits you at jeffisfunny.com. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, this is one of my favorite parts of the show where I get to share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. A little 411 I picked up on the street. I've been in the social media game for many, many, many years, and I love to share some tidbits with you so we can all raise our social game together. Side note, this past Friday, I delivered the keynote at IndiePods 2021 Independent Podcaster Conference. I delivered the keynote on social engagement. So that was pretty cool. But enough about me, am I right? <laughs> My social media tip today is combination of Instagram and Twitter. In the past, I always thought it was so weird that people posted from Instagram to Twitter. Here, check out my post on Instagram because the integration used to be it would just push a link. So the person on Twitter would have to just blindly click the link to go to Instagram to 
have any idea what the image may or may not be. Recently, Instagram made a bit of a upgrade to make it a little more palatable. I still think it's better to post the picture on Twitter if you really want people on Twitter to see it so they can see the full picture. But at least now, if you're on Instagram and you're looking at the post and the three dots in the upper right, if you click that and click share to and then click Twitter, at least now there's a little thumbnail of the image from Instagram that shows up in the tweet. So the person on Twitter has some idea what they're about to get into when they click on that link to see the full picture in all its glory. So it's better now than it was. If you must use it, great. You'll get more probably engagement from that interaction, from that social sharing. I still recommend just post it on Twitter, but if you're really into Instagram impressions and all that, and you want to drive it to Instagram, I get it, but now it's better. And that's the social media tip. I do want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show, and that's how we keep the lights on. This week's interview sponsor, Village Delicatessen. Breakfast all day, bagels, the best pastrami and homemade soup in all of New York City. Located right next to Joe's Pizza. When it's pizza time, it's time for Joe's Pizza. Best slices in town. So if you're hungry, if you're in New York, Village Delicatessen and Joe's Pizza are waiting for you. As with all our sponsors, tell them you heard about them on Live from Detroit, the Jeff Tawaskin Show. So not too long ago, I was reading the news. Specifically, I was reading an article from The Hollywood Reporter about Nicholas Hammond and the new Spider-Man movie. And everyone seemed to take The Hollywood Reporter, sourced it, but made their own article out of that same content. I read it and thought to myself, I'm going to have my people call Nicholas's people and see if Nicholas wants to come on the podcast because I just want to talk with Nicholas. Sure enough, we arranged it. We talked The Sound of Music, Lord of the Flies, of course, The Amazing Spider-Man, The Brady Bunch. Nicholas also shared with me the whole story of meeting with Quentin Tarantino and landing the role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This interview has everything. I'm excited for you to hear it. Everyone get ready for the OG Peter Parker, Nicholas Hammond himself. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest from Lord of the Flies, from The Sound of Music, from the amazing Spider-Man, everyone's favorite web slinger, Nicholas Hammond. <laughs> hey, welcome hey, to Hey, Jeff. Show. Great to see you. Great to hear you and see you. Great to just be with you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks. So fun. I do want to talk Spider-Man. It's the hot topic right now, but I want to lead up to Spider-Man. I want to get to Spider-Man because... You've got some great stuff that you've done, and I want to talk about that. Thanks. The first thing I'm really interested in is Lord of the Flies. Yeah. That was one of the first projects that you were a part of? Oh, yeah. It was my first. I was 10. It was my first job, and I guess you could call it my first professional job. We boys were paid for being in the film. We were paid the princely sum of $10 a week. It was a 10-week shoot on the a little tiny island off of Puerto Rico called Vieques. And at the end of the 10 weeks, we were each given a crisp, brand new $100 bill. And, and I've never felt richer in my life. Because when you're 10 years old and someone hands you $100, especially $1961, you feel like you are 
you've hit easy street. Yeah, and the money had nothing to do with it. I mean, for us, I think for every boy on that film, and I've stayed in touch with a few of them over the years, the chance to go to a desert island and sort of play cowboys and Indians with no parents around for 10 weeks. I mean, what kid is going to say no to that? We had the best time. It was a it was a wonderful experience. But on a more serious level, what it did for me was it introduced me to people like Peter Brook, who, of course, I didn't know he was one of the great geniuses of you know direction in the world, as he remains today at the age of 102. It was a wonderful kind of imprint into the brain. You know, when you think of the little baby duckling and it comes out of the shell and the first thing it sees, it thinks that's the mother. Well, for me, the first time I'd ever been on a film set, the person you followed was this great genius director who was kind, thoughtful, never raised his voice, was always interesting and interested in everything you were doing. And it just made me think, this is a worthwhile way to spend your life. Doing work with people like this who are serious about what they do, but also know how to have fun. I think it imprinted something in my brain. And so I came out of that film thinking, well, unless someone can show me something better, I think this is what I'm going to do. And you know what? 61 years later, no one's shown me anything better. <laughs> wow. So I'm still doing it. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, so that was my question. When you auditioned for it, yeah. uh, Peter Brook, I read, saw over 3,000 boy actors when choosing the mm. cast. So yeah. one amazing that you got selected. But had you not gotten selected, was this at the point before you fell in love with it and realized how great it was, mm. was it just something you were doing? Oh, I'm going to try this out. Or were you at 10 already? I'm going to be an actor. Like I I thought about it because my mother had been an actress. My mother had been a very successful actress in in England before she married my father, who was an American army officer over in London at the time, and she'd had a really good career which she gave up when she married and then had my brother and me. But I used to hear stories my mother told about what it was like to do movies and what it was like to be in the theater. I met a, a number of her actor friends and they all seemed to be happy people. They all seem to be positive. They all seem to have wonderful stories and jokes. So as a child, I just kind of associated the word actor with people who were kind of full of life, full of energy, full of kind of positive energy. So I had already, I didn't really understand what it meant to be an actor, of course. But when I heard they were auditioning boys for um, Lord of the Flies, yeah, I asked my parents, can I do this? Can I try out anyway? And I think they said yes, assuming, as you just said, if there are 3,000 kids auditioning, your chances of getting picked probably aren't that great. But why not audition? Why not have the fun of doing it? And as luck would have it, Peter chose me as one of the 30. So it, I, I felt very lucky to be chosen. And, you know, I loved being in the film. And obviously, we didn't know when we were making it. I don't think anybody knew, including Mr. Brooke, you know, that it would become one of the classic, iconic films of the 60s, and a film that is still studied today in film schools around the world. But I just felt lucky to be in it. No, totally. It's, it's amazing. I mean, we'll get to your second iconic film in a second. <laughs> so my question, though, 
as a 10 year old. Yeah. All of you are probably right around that same age, right? Yeah, yeah. Give or take. It's a dark movie. I mean, two kids get killed in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a violent, it's, there's, it's violent, right? It's, I mean, even today when things go crazy, you're like the phrase Lord of the Flies. Yeah, refer to as Lord of the Flies. Yeah, I know. So, you know, Piggy getting killed by the boulder and then uh, the other boy being, you know, so did that have any impact? Like, did that, what did that do to it? You know, all the young boys? I mean, because I, it just seems that like that would have like a. I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. And in fact, a lot of people, not only at the time, but later, you know, expressed the same concern. In fact, funnily enough, there was a Time magazine reporter who came down to the island while we were there. And I think he was there for about a week. And he wrote a, a piece in Time afterwards saying, every one of these 30 boys is going to need serious psychiatric help after this. Well, we thought that was hysterically funny because, again, going back to Peter Brook, he took all of that out of it for us. We didn't know. We had no idea of what the subtext of this was. None of us had read the book. We weren't encouraged to read the book. It was treated as though let's play a game of capture the mountain or let's play a game of cowboys and Indians. Today, you're going to be the good guys and you're going to be the bad guys and tomorrow we'll swap. So, it was kept on the level of we're having fun. You know, we're pretending. You know, it's like if you're in your backyard and you're playing cowboys and Indians, you know, you're not really a cowboy and the other guy isn't really an Indian. But for the sake of the game, you pretend you are. And I think that was kind of the world we were in, where it was kind of like, okay, those guys up there that are going to throw Piggy off the cliff. They're pretending to do that. It's a game. And anyway, we're all going to have dinner with Hugh tonight, who plays Piggy, and we're all going to laugh about it. And the boy who played Ralph, who also gets killed, and then we're going to play a game of tennis with him tomorrow while we're waiting to go on the set. It all stayed very much in a world of make-believe. And, you know, there was no method acting involved. There was none of that. It was all just kind of like... And, and also... Because we were kids, the difference between when we were actually filming and when we were just hanging out, it blurred. You know, it's like, okay, you're down there swimming in the surf, waiting, and then they say, okay, now we're going to do a shot of you swimming in the surf. Well, nothing's different. Just do the same thing. So I don't think any of us ever took on, I, well, all I can say is I have never heard from all of the reunions we've had, from all of the conversations we've had, from all of the thousands of interviews I've done about the, uh, Lord of the Flies, I have never heard a story about any boy on that film who suffered any kind of psychological damage from being in it. And again, I'll just go back to Peter Brook. I think he set the, the tone. And he obviously decided the way to do this with 30 boys, none of whom who have ever been in a film before, is treat it like it's summer camp, but it's summer camp with a purpose. You know, we're working towards something. I mean, I'm sure there are summer camps where kids go to learn baseball or they go to learn sailing. And, you know, you work towards that goal. Well, we were at a summer camp where our goal was to make a movie. That's great. No, it's great. the way you described it, it made sense. It was just... But it's a logical question to ask because the follow-on to that question really would be, I think, could you make that movie today? And I don't think you could. I don't think child protection services and all the rules that exist today now in the film industry, well, A, you wouldn't, they wouldn't allow you to have 30 kids with no parental supervision. 
I mean, we had a bunch of drunk backpackers who were our so-called guardians who would like disappear at seven o'clock and we wouldn't see them again until the next morning. But it didn't matter. And we were sleeping on army cots in an abandoned pineapple factory. That probably wouldn't be allowed either. And, you know, (laughs) and as you say, the violence. So thank God we made Lord of the Flies when we did. Because I, I, I really honestly don't think, I mean, I sometimes wonder about that. Some of, the, some of my absolute, what I think are some of the best films from the 60s and 70s, a film like Taxi Driver. I'm really not sure whether you'd be allowed to make Taxi Driver today. The regulations have just changed so radically since those days. The good story is we're all fine and we're all thrilled to have been in it. Fantastic. So from being stranded on an island... Your next iconic movie, you you went from uh, being stranded on the island to escaping the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Sound of Music. And again, this seems to be my fate in life. Again, the film in which they auditioned 3,000 kids, possibly more around the world. So once again, I was incredibly lucky to get that role. That really changed my life. Well, I think, I think and in fact, even Julie will admit this, it changed all our lives. That was one of those things where you come out of that movie and you're the same person you were before until the day the movie opens. And the day the movie opens, everything changed for all of us. And it's remained so to this day. Girls who played my sisters in the film and the boy who played my brother, we still say that. That was it. I mean, nothing will ever compare to that for any of us. It was a huge blessing to be in something as Wonderful is that. Uh, quick question. How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> Maria doesn't need solving if she's played by Julie Andrews because Julie Andrews is practically perfect in every way. Yes, yes. The, the other question I've been asked all my life is why do I think the sound of music has been so successful and has withstood the test of time and is more successful now than it ever was? And my answer always is two words, Julie Andrews. And it would take a very brave person to try to remake that film with anybody else, because it was one of those kind of perfect alignments of the stars of Mr. Wise choosing Julie Andrews to play that role just at a time when Julie was at exactly the peak of her voice, the peak of her skills, you know, as a dancer, as everything, and ready ready to really take a big bite of the apple and go for the big role. And she'd done Poppins, but Poppins hadn't been released yet. She had the freedom of no one knowing who she was. So there wasn't the expectation on her that would come, of course, as soon as the movie opened. Julie walked on the set. I can remember the very first scene we shot was the thunderstorm scene where we're all in bed with her and she sings favorite things. No one knew who she was. I mean, no one on the crew knew who she was. I knew who she was because my parents had taken me to to see her on stage in My Fair Lady. So I'd seen this extraordinary talent perform as Eliza Higgins in My Fair Lady. But none of the other kids knew, none of the other actors knew, which in a way freed Julie up. No one was expecting anything of her. So she just kept every day amazing everybody where everyone's going, who is this? You know, where did this woman come from? And she was, as we know, you know, she was just brilliant in the film. 
Oh, just brilliant. I can't even, I can't even imagine what a masterclass that must have been. It was a masterclass in so many ways. As I said before about Peter Brook, who showed me how a director should behave, Julie showed me how a star should behave. She was there before anyone else in the morning. You know, we had months of rehearsals. So let's say we're rehearsing, well, the Do Re Mi sequence, which we rehearsed forever because it was such a big sequence. Well, you'd get there in the morning to start rehearsal. Julie had already been there for 45 minutes before everyone else in her leotard, doing the dance steps on her own. Everyone else would go at the end of the day. Julie would stay and keep working on her own. And it impressed in me, again, you know, these are the lessons you learn. I was 13 and a half when we started and 14 when we ended. And I've never forgotten that lesson. I've never forgotten that if you're ever given the big job, if you're given the job of where you carry the show, this is how you behave. This is how you lead from the top. Because Julie never complained, no one complained. Because no one had the workload she had. It was a wonderful lesson. And I told her that just quite recently. I saw her not that long ago. And I reminded her of what a gift she gave me as a, as a young aspiring actor of the correct way of behaving. And when I see people behave in inappropriate ways, I have no sympathy. People say, oh, they're under a lot of pressure. Oh, well, you know, I say, no, 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 sorry, no excuse. No excuse, because I know who doesn't do that. And if she doesn't do it, they don't have to do it. So I've never had any tolerance for that kind of movie star diva behavior because it's just not necessary. It wastes energy. How nice that you had such a, an amazing role model so early. The, yeah. I always get a kick out of being able to tell people things. Like you just mentioned, you were able to tell Julie Andrews that. I think it's so important for everybody to do that and kind of share yeah. because people don't realize always how they touched other people. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, look, I'm sorry to bother you, but I just, and I think, don't be sorry to bother me. You know, if you've got a personal story about what the sound of music meant to you, and I've heard thousands of them, I'm here to hear it. That's what you should do. You, I can't tell you the joy that gives me. When you say my grandmother was in the hospital and we knew she was going, but her last wish was she wanted to watch The Sound of Music. So we all gathered around the hospital bed and watched the movie with her. And they're apologizing for telling me. And I think, are you kidding me? How many actors in the world have been in movies where it has that effect on them? I'm the most privileged person in the world that I've been in something that gave that much joy to that many people, you know, and continues to, to this day. I think you're right, Jeff. I, I think it's an important message to send out that if something has touched, and it's not just for actors, I think it's probably for everybody, doctors, lawyers, whatever, teachers, certainly teachers. If something, they did something that was significant to your life, tell them, just tell them. Absolutely. I, I remember... Sound of Music would be the one of those. Is what was one of those movies that, and like The Wizard of Oz, it would just play. They played it every year, and I yeah, remember yeah. for some reason we'd always be at my grandparents. And the Sound of Music, what it's like twelve hours long, right? It, and uh, <laughs> well, three. three, but you know, for a kid when you're six, that's long. Yeah, exactly. I remember we'd always want to. We didn't want to stop watching, and it. it was always an excuse that we could stay and sleep over at yeah. our grandparents and continue to watch it. I, I don't even know how many times I've seen it. And I do know it was one of the, I know, first DVDs that I bought. I remember. I've had so many people with little kids tell me it is the electronic babysitter. 
It's like if you need a timeout from your three-year-old, put them in front of the TV and put in the sound of music and they will sit there transfixed for hours. Absolutely. <laughs> I just have to ask you to say, I'm Frederick, I'm 14, I'm impossible. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, well, no, I'm just kidding. I know. And that still applies. I did meet Angela Cartwright once. Would that have been at a Comic-Con? Yeah, I met her at a Comic-Con, yeah. She does more of them because she's got the kind of triple threat of Sound of Music, Lost in Space, and what's the other one? And so, well, she goes with her sister who was in The Birds. Ronnie was in The Birds. And so they quite often go as a double act to Comic-Cons, which, you know, the fans love. Yeah, that's awesome. I had her sign Lost in Space because it was like a Lost in Space theme, the Comic-Con. So I think Billy Mommy was there. Oh, sure. And June Lockhart, probably. The next year she was, and I did. Oh, right. (laughs) I had to bring it back to get hers. (laughs) Oh, I see. (laughs) So, very cool. How cool. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool, so cool. Well, if they ever do a a Spider-Man Comic Con, I'll be turning up. Let me connect you with the uh, Motor City folks. Uh, Oh, that'd be cool. I'd love that. I'll send your manager's info to them. Yeah, great. Thank you. And then I'll just say... Nicholas insists I run the panel, and we'll go from there. Oh, oh, no question, Jeff. I'm not doing it unless you're there. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas will be there. We can do a Q&A. Right, we'll put it right in the contract. Jeff DeWasser yeah. must be there. Yeah. <laughs> the other, I guess, quick iconic thing before we get to uh, Spider-Man is your Doug Simpson from the Brady Bunch. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Which took me, and I think the, the world, entirely by surprise. I mean, this is the this is the kind of charm in a way, and yet completely random thing about being in this business. Jobs that you think at the time are kind of completely journeyman jobs. You drop in as a guest on one episode of The Brady Bunch. And I mean, I was thrilled to do it because The Brady Bunch was, you know, at that point, it was like American, you know, it was a sacred show. You That and the Waltons, which I also did several of them. But there was another reason I really wanted to do The Brady Bunch. Is my episode was directed by a guy named Jack Arnold. And Jack Arnold, I'd seen a couple of movies he'd done. He was actually a really seriously good director. And he was just at a point in his career where he was a bit older and, he, you know, he wasn't getting doing movies anymore. But I thought, Jack Arnold is major, major director. I'd really like to do this. And they said, you know, you're playing a high school kid. And I said, you do know I'm 23. I said, I'll be the oldest high school kid in the history of the world until I saw John Travolta in Greece. And then I realized, no, I'm not the oldest high school kid in the history of the world. I love doing it. You know, it was fun. It was just like a fun job. And you don't think anything of it at the time. And suddenly it just snowballed. And, you know, the Comic Cons I did, I would have as many people come up and ask me to sign Doug Simpson pictures as Spider-Man pictures. Just, it was astonishing to me. You know, and I speak to Maureen occasionally and, you know, and, and we talk about maybe doing something together, but it was hysterical. And I think I don't, I don't deserve to be put up there with these kids who did like 9 million episodes. I did one. And the one episode I did, they turned into a Broadway play. And they did, the subject was roses, noses as a Broadway play. So who knows? Who knows what becomes popular and what doesn't? Well, it's, you know, it has some iconic pieces to it. Like the, ow, my nose, 
I think it was, yeah. it was a popular meme or gif. And something just something just came right, up. Something suddenly, yeah, something suddenly suddenly came up, came, right? Came up or whatever. Right. Was it also was that I'm trying to remember if if they parodied that in the original Brady Bunch movie? I can't remember. I was just I didn't see the movie, but I know that I know that phrase. But of course, you know, it was a little morality tale. I mean, she dumped the guy who was the nerd Charlie to go out with me, and then she got her comeuppance. So it was kind of like, you know, the story was, well, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. <laughs> right, right. You were the, the the cool football player. She was, yeah. you, asked Mar- you asked Marsha out. And then when her nose was swollen for like five minutes, her nose was swollen. Exactly. I know. It was suddenly. And you're and, like, and, and oh, you I can't look go at it. with you. Your nose is swollen. <laughs> I got a rep. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I was the big I was the big man on campus and wore wore the varsity letter sweater and all that stuff. I do remember all that. So, oh man, too funny. Too funny. Yeah. Good stuff. So I do remember I had a pretty cool little car. A little like a little triumph or a little MG sports car, which I thought was pretty cool. And it was fun. I mean, I never got to meet most of the cast because I really only worked with Maureen. You know, I didn't really, I never met Shirley. I never, I, well, I'd worked with Robert Reed on two other shows. I didn't meet him on, on Brady Bunch. I didn't meet, uh, you know, Alice. I didn't meet any of the kind of regulars. Oh, I met Barry. I met Barry. He was he was there when I was working there. And but you know, so I kind of feel like I was parachuted in and then pulled out without ever really being a part of the show. Right. Yeah. Most of your scenes were at school, so it was. I think it was just right when Barry yeah. Williams was with Maureen. Yeah, Barry was there, and then some. A couple of other girls who were like friends of Maureen's. Right, and then um, Eve Plum. Wait, you had I wrote this down. Hang on, this is because I thought <laughs> this. Was, oh, you drive Marsha home. That's right. And then when she gets out of the car, you say, you make the car look good, Marsha. And I was like, I wrote that down because I'm like, smooth. You are smooth. <laughs> I'll have to watch it again. I'd forgotten I said that, but it's a pretty cool line. You've got to admit. Oh, it's great. Yeah. There was a, there was like a 10 minute clip of all your scenes. If you type in Doug Simpson. Brady, Brady Bunch. Bunch. You'll find, you can oh, find like a 10 YouTube minute where they took out the other 15 minutes oh, and it's just your thread. <laughs> just me. It's a, it's a, it's a tribute. It's a tribute. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's talk Spider-Man. This is like, so this is um, seven-year-old Jeff. Like, if I could go now to seven-year-old Jeff and say, one day, Jeff, you're going to meet Spider-Man, Peter Peter Parker. Parker. So this is a big deal. I have great memories of this show. I loved watching, because Spider-Man, like most kids, was my favorite. And so Mm -hmm. to see a live-action version of it, amazing. I loved it. So I'm excited to be talking to you about this. And uh, just for everyone listening, Nicholas denies being in the new Spider-Man movie, just like Andrew and Toby deny it. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what we were told to do. (laughs) The whole concept of the multiverse opening up, maybe not because they're going to be doing, there's going to be a million of those episodes. Yeah. Um, So that'd be exciting. So talk to me about landing the role of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. A, of course, nobody knew. We were really kind of going through uncharted waters because at that point, the only thing that had been on television even remotely like it was Batman. And I wasn't interested in doing a show like Batman. That just didn't, I I thought that's just not me. I thought there's nothing wrong with it. It's, you know, it is what it is, but you know, it's camp and it's making fun of it. And it's kind of grown men behaving like they are cartoon characters. And I, funnily enough, was doing a play in L.A., and unbeknownst to me, the people at CBS uh, Studios, they'd been looking 
to do a pilot of Spider-Man. So they were looking for the lead. They were looking for a Peter Parker. And somebody, whether it was the casting director or one of the producers, they saw me in this play and my agent called and said, look, they want to meet you. They're doing Spider-Man. And of course, all I could think of was they're doing a remake of Batman. And I thought, I I just don't think I'm the right guy for that. Or I thought they want some guy who looks like Lou Ferrigno. You know, they want just some huge muscle bound, you know, weightlifter. They want Arnie Schwarzenegger. And I said, really? And he said, well, just go take the meeting, you know, see. And I thought, well, okay. So I went in and I said to them off the top of, you know, before we even started, I said, look, very nice to meet you. But I said, I'm just going to confess to you. I don't think I'm a guy who can play that kind of bang, whoosh, whiz, whoosh guy. And they said, no, 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 that's not what we want. They said, we want a guy who looks completely believable. We want a guy where the audience forgets they're watching a guy with superpower. We want them to get completely engrossed in Peter's story and in Peter's life and his problems and his issues with his job, with his college, with the girl he cares for. We want them to forget this is a show about a superhero. And then I thought, okay, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's more my wheelhouse of what I might be able to do. So we talked some more and we talked some more. I remember if I tested for it. I don't think I did, funnily enough. No, I don't think I tested for it. I think I, I think we put something down on film, but it, I, I don't know. Anyway, for one reason or another, they offered me the job. Again, Going into it, I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing here. This is completely new for me. I had just come from doing some, you know, play, an Oscar Wilde play, and that was the kind of actor I was. And and suddenly I'm being fitted for these red and blue suit lycra costumes, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? You know, I'm going to make a fool of myself. They're going to realize they made a terrible mistake hiring me. But I thought, well, I'm in now. I better keep going. We all just kind of figured it out as we went. I mean, the other thing was, which was a decision they made, which I I think was the right decision. Unfortunately, it uh, it was not a decision Stan Lee liked, but it was a decision that I think was absolutely the smart thing to do, was since they had this premise of it wanting to be grounded in reality, they weren't going to have green goblins and monsters that looked like giant, you know, tarantulas, and they they were going to have real villains as in drug dealers, smugglers, people who are trading in nuclear waste. In that way, it was going to become sort of like a crime show where what Peter was using his powers for were to stop evil, genuine evil, not made up evil of monsters, but evil as in real evil that exists on planet Earth today. And and I kind of Well, I love that because it just meant as an actor, I was working with really good actors, you know, Robert Alda and um, all these guys who were playing the bad guys. And it was just like a whole kind of phone directory of of these kind of wonderful character actors that were still around in Hollywood in those days. So that was how we went. And I absolutely loved it, Jeff. I loved doing the show. I just loved doing the show. I, I loved it for so many reasons. For one, I thought it had a good message. And I thought this is good for kids to see that if you are given this power, use it for good. I mean, Peter could have used his power to rob banks. He could have used it to do whatever he wanted. And instead, he used it to help people. So that I liked. I also, to be frank with you, it ticked 
a box on the bucket list that I think secretly every actor has, which is to have your own primetime series. And I don't know many actors who secretly don't wish that they could have their own series. And, you know, I starred in a play on Broadway. I'd done The Sound of Music. The one thing I hadn't done, on te- I'd played a million guest roles on TV, but I'd never had my own show. And this was it. And I just thought, this is an experience every actor dreams of getting, where it's your show. And so I loved it for that reason as well, which might be sort of egotistical, but it was also kind of like facing a challenge and meeting the challenge. Because there's something very sobering about walking on a set every morning and there are 150 people and all their jobs depend on you. If you're bad and the show gets canceled, they're out of work. When you're 27, that's a lot. And yet I I was really happy to be given that position. So those are all the reasons I liked it. So tell me, as a follow-up to your earlier comments, as the main guy on the show, as the main star of The Amazing Spider-Man, how did uh, Julie Andrews influence you on the set of The Amazing Spider-Man? Well done you for making that, because that, that is exactly where it came into play. Because suddenly, for the first time, I was that guy. And so I would like to think, and from what I've heard in feedback from members of the crew and actors who worked on it, I would like to think that I carried that same attitude in. And I tried to be a person who made everybody on the show feel important and valued and welcome. Because, you know, when you're doing a weekly series, the directors change every week. You no longer have like the director who is the top guy as they are on a film. And that's the, you know, that's the pecking order. But on a series, it really is the lead who is because he's the only one or she is the only one who's there every week that everybody looks up to. I mean, your directors are coming in and out, you know, your guest stars are coming in and out, but the the rock on the show is the lead. So if we would get a new member of the crew or indeed a new guest star, which we would have every week, I would make a point of going, knocking on their door, introducing myself, welcoming them to the show, because I know what it's like to guest star. And you can feel very lonely as the new kid in school if everybody else is kind of like they're all tight as can be because they've worked together and you're just kind of like, you know, feeling like the kid in the school cafeteria who no one wants to sit with. And I would make a point of making sure they didn't feel like that. And it pays off because then their work is better, you know, so it's not entirely altruistic. It actually helps the show to have everybody feel valued. Very cool. Yeah. But I did get that from Joey. You're right. That was an absolute follow on from her. And I would like to think I passed that example on to people I've worked with over the years. In fact, I know I have because I've been told I have. So you just keep passing the torch down the line. That's great. There is no greater good deed than being a good role model. I think so. I think I agree with you. Before you became Peter Parker Spider-Man, were you a big Spider-Man fan? I can't pretend I was. I mean, I knew who he was. I read Spider-Man comics, but probably no more than reading Superman comics or Batman comics. It became a revelation to me once I started doing the show of how enormous 
his fan base was. I think it was a revelation to everybody. The people who were most surprised were CBS, CBS television when it became the highest rated show pilot of the year with a 37 share, which they had never had for anything. And I don't think anybody realized how many Spider-Man fans there were out there. And of course, obviously over the years, because it's again, become sort of a part of my life, I've become much more aware the following and 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 I've become much more respectful of why people like the character as much as they do. What did it feel like being dressed up as Spider-Man? Like when you're on the set and you're Spider-Man? Yeah. Uh the scenes where you were Spider-Man? I don't know. To me that would be <laughs> like when I picture I'm like it must have been like you're like all of a sudden you're like this superhero. It's like it's just really <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you do. I mean, it is it well, you just have to assume that. I mean, you just have to you just think, okay, this is it. This is who I now have to be. And I mean, the great thing was, is that, again, it didn't involve a physical transformation. You know, I could still just be me inside the suit. I didn't have to have a lot of fake biceps and fake abs and all that. I could just be me. But me with that extra layer of somebody who is now carrying with him both the burden and the responsibility of the power. And so I just tried to layer all that into it. And it is always me in the suit if you ever see a scene in which Spider-Man is interacting with other actors. Because I never let this... I mean, the stuntman would do the stunts because, well, he was better at them than me. And also, we just didn't have time. You know, we would have an A crew that would follow me around and a B crew that would be with the stuntman. I never would let actors work with the stuntman. If there was a scene where actors had to speak and there was dialogue, I always, that was one of the few things where I kind of pulled rank and would say, I don't care if it takes longer. I don't care if we have to reset. I'm not going to have them work with Freddie because bless Freddie's heart. He's really great at climbing a building, but he's a terrible actor. So I can't have those actors have to interact with them, just as I would be a terrible guy climbing a building. You know, we each had our own corner. That's pretty cool. And uh, Fred Waugh. Yeah, Freddie Waugh. Freddie Waugh. I mean, those are intense stunts for the time. Let me tell you, I mean, again, I don't think you could get away with doing what Freddie did then. I mean, he was fearless. He was completely fearless. He'd spent some time working in, uh, in the circus as a high wire artist. And he just had that thing in his brain where he had absolutely no fear of height at all. You know, I mean, I did scenes up on rooftops, which were fine, but like you get a bit close to the edge and, you know, I could feel the back of the knees starting to get a little funny and thinking, oh, I really don't want to get right on the edge. Thank you very much. You know, we're 90 stories up. I really don't want Freddie. No problem. Right to the edge. And then just go over the edge on a cable, you know, some tiny little thin cable that was on a harness under his suit. And I thought, my God, I always remember we were in the Empire State Building and we were up on the 69th floor and they just opened a window and Freddie went out the window on the 69th floor of the Empire State Building. And but I mean, he was he was brilliant. He was a brilliant stuntman. And I get so annoyed when everybody says, oh, well, it was all CGI, wasn't it? I said, no, 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 no CGI. It's Freddie climbing a building, Freddie on a rooftop, Freddie swinging from one building to another. It was real. He really did it. Yeah, I don't think they had CGI back then, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't exist. And they had kind of really, really, really lame blue screen, which we tried using once and it was so terrible that we just gave up. No, it was just Fred 
doing it. If they'd say, well, Spider-Man's got to go up the building, Freddie would just rig it with a cable and up he'd go. So cool. Yeah. I've read you had the opportunity, but then didn't really keep many mementos. I know I could kick myself. You know, I had a closet full of those suits in my dressing room, in my trailer. And I remember the very last day I went around and shook hands and we all had a little cry. We were all sad it was over. And I just got in my car and left. And I could have taken a suit. I could have taken my boots. They were on the, everything was offered to me. And I just thought, oh, well, why would I do that? I've actually had people who did get suits who have approached me at Comic-Cons with the suit. I hate to think how much money they paid for them and, you know, that I've signed them for. Them. So they're out there still. I mean, not many. I think there were four or five of mine. And then Freddie had his own. Oh, I have a belt buckle. I have a, a silver Spider-Man head belt buckle. So I have that. That's about the only one I've kept. Well, at least you got something. Yeah, of course. What I have is the memory. I did it. And no one else, you know, I, I, I created the role of Peter Parker. That's enough for me, really. That is really cool, right? Yeah. I'm sure you enjoy watching the new movies. Oh, sure. Oh, oh yeah, I do. You know, and, and I mean, it's it's gone to such a different level because of the money and the technology. But of course, I enjoy watching. I particularly enjoyed watching Tom Holland. I thought, you know, in many ways, I felt he was the closest to what we were trying to do. I mean, I thought Andrew was really good, too, and Toby, too. But I thought they evolved and got better. I think Andrew was kind of like really getting it. But then when they went with Tom Holland, I thought, yeah, that's kind of who Peter should be. That young, that naive. He shouldn't be a kind of knowing, sophisticated guy at all. So I thought Tom Holland, for me, I thought he, I mean, I don't know whether they watched my show as a way of kind of starting to think about the character or not, but I just think there's been a natural progression, a natural evolution. And it's great. It's great that it keeps going. You mentioned Stan Lee. Yeah. Yeah, he was a little negative outspoken about it, but I'd read that he had issues when they were coming up with the Hulk too. Like, Look, Stan was very, I, I loved him. And when we were shooting the pilot in New York, he was there a lot. He was there every day on the set. And, you know, he was excited. He was thrilled that they were doing a TV show of his, of his comic. But like a lot of writers... They become very overly protective of their work. I remember Ernest Hemingway once said, if you're going to sell your book to the movies, he said, just get to the Arizona-California border, throw your book over the fence and go back to New York. In other words, if you make the decision a movie's going to be made, let them make their movie. They're not going to make your book. They're going to make their movie. And I think for Stan, that was hard to accept, is that it's never going to be what he has in his imagination. And let's face it, you can draw something in a comic book. You can draw anything. But when you're faced with the reality that you've got to turn out an hour show in seven days and you've got a limited budget and you've got only so many you know, shots you can do each day, you don't have an infinite kind of canvas to work on the way you do when you're drawing a comic book. So I think that was very difficult for Stan to comprehend. I think he was better with the, the more recent movies because when they've got $30 million worth of special effects, then it's getting closer to kind of the Stan Lee world. But you know what? What was sad was I was doing a movie in LA a couple of years ago. I'd had communication with Stan and I knew he wasn't well, but his assistant said he'd really like to see you. And I spoke to the director on the film, and this director doesn't allow any visitors at all, ever, on his film set. And I said, would it be okay if Stan Lee came down for lunch? And 
absolutely fine. And then I got a message the day before Sam was coming for lunch that he was very unwell and he'd been taken to the hospital and then he passed away. Oh. Very sadly, that meeting never happened because I wanted to have a chance to explain to him, well, everything I've just said to you about why we were not able to fulfill his expectations. And sadly, I never, I, I think that message got relayed to him, but I just wanted to sit down with him again and say, Stan, look, we did the best we could under the circumstances. And at least we launched your character to the world globally and look what it's become. I got, yeah, I got to believe that as technology probably in hindsight was like, oh, okay. You know, that was. Yeah, I think he was. I actually, well, as I say, he was the one that wanted to have lunch with me. I think maybe he was going to do a bit of apologizing himself for some of the remarks he'd made over the years. And maybe he'd kind of come to an understanding of what we were up against. Because the show was popular, as you mentioned. It wasn't specifically canceled because of low ratings. Not at all. It was canceled. I mean, I think it was canceled because, I mean, I have to say, I really do blame CBS because they kept moving it around. They thought, oh, we have this huge hit on our hands. Let's keep putting it up against other shows that we're trying to knock down. Well, back in those days, which is hard for people to understand today, there were only four networks. And there was no recording of TV shows in advance. So it was like that became part of your life. Everybody knew Tuesday nights at eight o'clock, you watch the Waltons. So everybody kept eight o'clock Tuesday night for the Waltons. And you had in your head, everybody knew what was on each day of the week that they wanted to watch. What's on at seven, what's on at eight, what's on at nine. And we were, I think, well, ironically, I think we were the ones that were on Tuesday night. But as soon as we did incredibly well, then they'd put us on a Friday night or they'd put us on a Thursday night or they'd put us on a Monday night or a Sunday night. I would have people come up to me in the street and say, what happened to your show? I turned on and it's not there. And they couldn't follow it. And, you know, there was no Internet. There was no way of knowing those things unless you went out and bought a copy of the TV guide each week. So basically, people, I think, just thought this is too hard. I can't keep up. I can't find it. I mean, once it started coming out on video, everybody rushed out to buy the videos of it because then they could watch it again. But I think that's why it died. And so the network said, oh, well, people aren't watching it as much as they used to. And I thought, yeah, because they have no idea when it's on. Anyway, that's my little rant about CBS. I think we could have easily gone another couple of years. Oh, easily, easily. I think it was that. And then I read that the CBS was worried about becoming the superhero network, which the CW makes a whole cottage industry out of now. Yeah. You guys got canceled. Wonder Woman got canceled. I think only the Hulk survived. Yeah, uh, Incredible Hulk. I think you're right because CBS, there was a certain amount of snobbery back in those days. And CBS considered themselves the Tiffany Network. They were the gold standard network. They were the network that did all the very classy shows, all the shows that won all the Emmys. And so I do. I think you're right. I think they thought stuff like Us and Wonder Woman and Hulk, I think they thought it was, you know, kind of did not reflect well on the brand, which, of course, was insane. Insane. It's insane (laughs) even now when you think back, like. Oh, I know. Like all those shows are just considered so amazing. But that is the way they were. I, I remember it very well. I did an awful lot of CBS shows. And I know there was a certain arrogance when you worked at CBS. ABC was the down market network in those days. NBC was right in the middle, but CBS was the crown jewel. And, you know, shows like Gunsmoke and all these shows that have been on CBS for a million years, they all, you know, had great a sense of entitlement. 
that everybody is lucky and privileged to be working here. Speaking of lucky and privileged, so the Incredible Hulk comes back. They bring in Thor. They bring in Daredevil. Where's mm. Spider-Man? Don't ask me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I don't, I don't I'm not a network executive. I don't know where that you know these questions is like people saying why aren't you in the such and such film? And I say well because I don't work for Sony Pictures. That's why. <laughs> well, that that would have been a great uh, thing. Yeah, that would have been good. That would have been would have been a good team up. And you know, and I and I do think the idea of having cameos is cool because. Those little Easter eggs, the audience just loves them. And the fans just love them, you know. I think the more of those they do, the better, frankly. All right. Well, so we have the new Spider-Man movie coming out soon. We can, uh, yep. we'll, we'll squint to look for you. We'll wait for you. <laughs> Hopefully, like, if it kicks off, this movie, they've got a million things going on. Yeah. This is not the one you want to be on. they got six villains. they got that. so much. Not with their TV and everything that they extend, all these things. What if? Uh, yeah, there's, there's opportunity. Who knows? It's been a very fun ride up until now. And if it goes on any further, that would be even more fun. But I'm happy to do whatever anybody wants. Very cool. Very cool. This was awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff. I've enjoyed talking to you. You're so nice. You're so great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And I'll just give you one final anecdote, which was actually, this was in The Hollywood Reporter. You may already know it. But I did a movie for Quentin Tarantino called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the reason I was in that film in many ways is because I played Peter Parker. That's because uh, Quentin was a big fan of my show. Uh, he asked to meet me. And when I I didn't know he was making a movie, I thought he just wanted to meet me to talk about Spider-Man, the way you and I have just talked now. Right, right. And we talked. And then he wanted to know about a lot of all other old shows I'd been in and, you know, a lot of Westerns I'd been on. And we just talked and talked and talked. And then, you know, the next day he offered me the role of Sam Wanamaker in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I think, well, Spider-Man is still paying off in many ways one would never expect. Having worked with Quentin was one of the great experiences of my life, and I will forever be grateful that he had me in his film. And in some ways, I owe it all to having played Peter Parker. You never know what's around the corner. That's awesome. And thank you. I did. I had that note, and I yeah. missed it. Yeah. Yeah, because that must have been great to work with Quentin, because I heard he had actually remastered or something like the pilot episode of Spider-Man. He did. He found, well, you know, the as you probably know, not only the pilot, but also two of the the two parters we did, the two hour ones, were released theatrically around the world. They were shown in movie theaters. So technically, I am the first Spider-Man to have been Spider-Man movies because the pilot of The Amazing Spider-Man all over Europe, all over South America, all over the Far East was shown in movie theaters as a movie. And Quentin found an original 35 millimeter print in an old movie theater in England, I think he told me. I'm pretty sure he said it was in England. And he brought it back and he remastered it, left it as a 35 millimeter print. But he, you know, he, with his magic and his facilities, he got it completely cleaned up and he got it, you know, made probably infinitely better than it had ever been. And he ran it at the New Beverly, which is his movie theater in L.A., and the word got, came back to me that he was running my pilot as a feature in his movie theater. And that's when I thought, oh, obviously he kind of, you know, liked it. So I told my people, why don't you just tell Quentin's people, only because I'm a fan of his. I didn't want anything. I just said, listen, if he really did like the series and if he wants to have a talk about it, next time I'm in L.A., I'd love to talk to him. I mean, I, you know, I think he's a great director and, and, I, and a fascinating person. And sure enough, the answer came back, yeah, could you please come in? 
And so we did, and we hung out. We talked for about two hours about everything under the sun. About you know, he, I mean, he knew everything I'd ever been into in my life. And so we were talking about weird stuff I'd done that I'd sort of half forgotten I'd been in, and actors I'd worked with. Funnily enough, he was the one that reminded me in the Brady Bunch episode of Jack Arnold. And of course, he could reel off the names of eight movies Jack Arnold had directed and what a great director he was. And then he said, oh, and you worked with Steven Spielberg when you did an episode of Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law at Universal in 1971. And I'm thinking, I don't remember half of this. He, you know, so I mean, but Quentin is just, his brain is, you know, he's an, an encyclopedia. And so then, you know, I went home and I, called my manager and I said, well, I just had the most amazing afternoon. We had this amazing talk and it was so much fun and, you know, and all that. My manager called back and said, he's just offered you the role of Sam Wanamaker. So that's how it happened. That's so cool. That's so cool. I know it is cool, isn't it? But he's very cool. He's very cool. And so that was a a huge fun thing to do. And, you know, he always shoots much more than actually he can use in the film. He shoots about four hours and has to cut it down to two and a half. So, of course, we all get really heartbroken when scenes we love don't make it into the movie. But in the book he's just written, he's just done a novelized version of Once Upon a Time. Every single scene that we shot that isn't in the movie is in the book. So as I said to him, well, thank you, Quentin. At least of those scenes, they didn't make it into the movie, but at least they're in print. <laughs> yeah, he's a cool guy. That's so awesome. You were the original Spider-Man trilogy, Spider-Man, Spider-Man Strikes Back, and Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge. Yeah, which I love with a great young uh, Asian actress, Rosalind Chow, who still works. That was her very first job. And she was wonderful and she's still a great friend of mine. So, you know, I feel I feel privileged that we're able to introduce a few people who went on and had really major careers of their own. And so, yeah, for many reasons, I'm I will always be grateful. I'll always be grateful to have I'll always be just grateful full stop. I mean, my Thanksgiving message is I have so much to be grateful for. I've had a fortunate life and who knows what's around the corner next but i'll be ready for it when it comes motor city comic-con oh please i don't let you go but I, this is how I, yeah. I, I thought of the perfect way to end this so long farewell i'll be the same <laughs> to you i do i do that's the one and you that's and you. the one to you and you and you <laughs> thank you Jeff. thank you all right, everyone. How amazing was nicholas hammond huh the original peter parker spider-man Right here on Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. Maybe I'll cast one of those spells. It'll open up the multiverse. Who knows who else will walk through? Hmm. All right. Well, that was awesome. A little behind the curtain with Stan Lee and his feelings on the show. Cool story about Quentin Tarantino. Awesome lessons Nicholas learned from Julia Andrews that he carried on with him. And of course, the life lesson of always be kind and respectful to a member of the Brady Bunch. Their nose will likely be better in the next scene. So many lessons learned in today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. It was a thrill talking to Spider-Man. It really was. Hopefully you caught last week's episode with Isaiah Whitlock Jr. I think you might still be able to get one of his bobbleheads at sh90sit.com. Don't know if there's any left, but if you need Isaiah with you all the time, definitely check that out. It's pretty awesome. The whole interview was awesome. All the interviews I do are awesome. I just have the best guests. I love them all. It's a joy, and hopefully that comes through week after week. But we are nearing the end of episode 84. I can't believe another episode is almost 
gone. As we near the end of an episode, it can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, absolutely free Hashtag Roundup app. Play along with us. Tweet along with us on Twitter. Follow us at Hashtag Roundup. Tweet, play games. One day your tweet may end up on live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag, of course, is Spider-Man related. We couldn't let Nicholas Hammond guest on the show and not do a Spider-Man related hashtag. Hashtag new Spider-Man trilogy plot lines. Nicholas was the first Spider-Man to star in the movies. Had his own trilogy back in the 70s. The new trilogy has just been announced with the multiverse. Who knows? Maybe we'll see Nicholas Hammond again in the movies. But in the meantime, from hashtags a go go, a weekly game on hashtag roundup, here is hashtag Spider Man trilogy plot lines. These, of course, are just fun guesses made by people on Twitter of what the new Spider Man trilogy might be. And here are a few of my favorites. Hashtag Spider-Man Trilogy Plotlines. Miles Morales and Peter Parker team up and make Spider-Man into a new buddy comedy. Sounds good to me. Spider-Man has surgery to have his spider veins fixed. Ooh, I'd watch three movies about that. Cousin Greg becomes the new Venom. (laughs) A little succession slash Spider-Man crossover mashup. Sounds like an amazing hashtag new Spider-Man trilogy plotline idea to me. And here are some more. Spider-Man experiments with wearing a variety of hats. Spider-Man does need to wear a hat. That would complete the outfit. Venom takes over everyone and everything. That would be amazing. Saving little Miss Muffet who sat on her tuffet from the spider who sat down beside her. That sounds like a trilogy waiting to happen. Peter Parker finds out who his daddy is. Oh, that would be a good one. Spider-Man meets the Lord of the Flies. Ooh, maybe we could do a Nicholas Hammond crossover with that one. Spider-Man jumps from multiverse to multiverse, fighting versions of himself, including Spider-Pig from The Simpsons. Spider-Pig, Spider-Pig, does whatever a Spider-Pig does. Spider-Man teams up with Jameson to do a podcast. That would be good. Not that I need more competition. We see the Spider-Man Family Guy crossover that we all need. Spider-Man spins a web of deceits as a politician. Ooh, Spider-Man goes to DC trilogy. That's a great idea. Here's another one. Tom Holland, Tobey Maguire, and Andrew Garfield lose their powers and get transported to a world where they become the three Spider Stooges. Yuck, yuck. Here's an idea for a Spider-Man trilogy. Spider-Man home shopping. Movie one, he buys something on TV. Movie two, he regrets it. Movie three, he buys another one when it breaks. Who wouldn't watch that? Here's another idea. Spider-Man gets lost in the dark web. (laughs) The May and Aunt May. Turns out it's short for Martha, which will come in handy if Spider-Man ever ends up in the DC universe. These are all amazing hashtag new Spider-Man trilogy plot lines. Great ideas for a new trilogy. And finally, a whole trilogy based on the fact that Peter bites the spider. Oh, all right. Well, those are some good hashtag Spider-Man trilogy plot lines. Who knows? Maybe they'll hear this podcast and steal half of them. It's like we're we're just making money here for people. All right. Well, that was awesome. Thanks, everyone who tweeted along. I'll retweet those at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. Look for those. Show them some love. Well, we just finished the hashtag. That means we're at the end of the episode. 
Episode 84 is done. It's over. Where did the time go? When you have so much fun, it just flies by, doesn't it? I know. Well, I do want to thank my special guest, Nicholas Hammond. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming by week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.